My guest today is Professor Sarah Seeger. Professor Sarah Seeger is an astrophysicist and planetary scientist at MIT. Her science research focuses on the theory, computation and data analysis of exoplanets. Her research has introduced many new ideas to the field of exoplanet characterization, including work that led to the first detection of an exoplanet atmosphere. She is the author of two textbooks on these topics. She was part of a team that co-discovered the first detection of light emitted from an exoplanet and the first spectrum of an exoplanet. In 2013, she was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship. Uh, Professor Sarah Seeger is with me on the phone from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Sarah, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thanks for having me today. Sarah, before we begin our discussion on the subjects of exoplanets and finding Earth-like planets, uh, please uh, tell us about yourself, about your education and about your career. Yes, well, I grew up in Canada, in the city, and I remember when I was a small child driving in the car with my father. I was sitting in the back seat, and I looked out the window, and there was the moon. But it seemed like the moon was following us. No matter how far we drove or which, how many corners we turned, the moon was always there. And I asked my father why, why the moon was following us, and he didn't know the answer. It turns out the moon is so far away that it appears to be fixed, and it just always appeared to be following me. I think I always had an interest in astronomy, even since I was that small. A little later, when I was about 10 years old, I had my first trip to the dark skies away from the city. And I remember stepping out in the middle of the night and looking up at the sky, and wow, I, my heart almost stopped. I had no idea there were so many stars. I just couldn't believe it. And I think astronomy has really loved. When I got a bit older, um, actually throughout my childhood and teenage years, my father belonged to an astronomy club, although he never participated, and the publications would pile up on the kitchen chair. I was always aware that astronomy was something people did. And when I turned 16 years old, I was, in high, I was just in my local high school, and I went to my local university open house. And there, I just was so shocked and surprised that I learned you could be an astronomer for a job. And I rushed home, and I told my father, and he was, shocked. He was angry with me. He just said, Sarah, you have to get a job. You have to be able to be employed. He didn't, think, he didn't know anything about astronomers, but he was pretty sure that I wouldn't be able to get a job for some reason. And he encouraged me to do something that was had more guaranteed employment. But nonetheless, I went to university and I studied science. I kept my options open so I could be a doctor with more reliable employment like my father wanted. But after a while, I just realized that how much I, I realized how much I liked science. And in particular, I thought I would study physics. I somehow thought naively that everything could be written down in an equation. And I wanted to do that. But when I studied physics, I then realized that's not so. We have to make approximations right from the get-go. So all of this, trying to find my way, knowing that I had a future in science somewhere, somehow, I again came back to astronomy. And my university offered some students summer jobs. They didn't pay very well, but we got to be interns. And I, got to, I worked on astronomy at an observatory where at night I would use two telescopes and monitor variable stars. And during the day, I had a somewhat tedious job of cataloging variable stars. But all of that I eventually decided that I thought I had what it took to become an astronomer, and I applied for graduate school. And I got into graduate school, and I even got into Harvard. So I went to Harvard, 
and just as I got there and completed my master's work, exoplanets around sun-like stars were discovered for the first time. And it's very risky for a student to work on a project uh, and it's such a new field because many people at the time didn't believe that the measurements of stars were really showing planets. They thought it was just variability in the star. But nevertheless, I took the plunge and I worked on exoplanets, specifically hot Jupiters, and I studied their atmospheres and what would be happening to them when they were so close to the star, many times closer to their star than Mercury is to our sun. And after that, I stayed with exoplanets. It became a real field. And from there, I went on to do a postdoc and eventually became a researcher and uh, a professor. So a lot of it's just about timing. It's about finding what you like doing, that you're good at doing, and the right project at the right time, and taking opportunities when they arise. And that's how I got involved with exoplanets. Uh, Sarah, as you just uh, briefly mentioned, one of the most exciting developments of the last few years in the field of astronomy uh, is the discovery of exoplanets, planets that orbit around the stars other than our sun. Now, this idea is not new. Uh, exoplanets were proposed by uh, Giordano Bruno uh, in 16th century. However, the first two confirmed exoplanets were discovered in 1992. Uh, and since then, we have discovered more than 1,700 exoplanets. Talk to us about the confirmed uh, discovery of exoplanets in 1992. Uh, how big uh, uh, was this discovery? Well, in 1992, planets were found around pulsars. Those are old, dead stars that emit very violent radiation. And they, have, they emit radiation in a very precise, timed fashion. And so by measuring how that timing changes, one can infer the presence of planets. But, you know, it's funny because people were hoping and wanting to find planets more like our own, like around a normal sun, not around a freakish object. So at first, people were a little puzzled. They weren't really sure what to do with those objects. But let's back up a little because... The history is pretty interesting. In fact, it dates back to the Greeks who speculated about planets. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's true that uh, for many times over and over again, people thought they had found planets. Later, the results were retracted. So once the pulsar planets came out, we call them pulsar planets because they're orbiting pulsars, uh, people didn't totally know what to make of them. Exoplanets don't emit light uh, and are usually very small as compared to the host uh, star. Uh, so we needed to develop techniques to detect them indirectly. Let us start with two main indirect techniques to detect uh, exoplanets. Uh, first technique is transit method and the second technique is radial velocity method. Uh, let us discuss these one by one. Uh, talk to us about uh, transit method of uh, detecting exoplanets. Yes, well, the transit method is really quite amazing. But if a planet goes in front of a star, as seen from the Earth or from a telescope, the star will drop in brightness by a tiny amount. Now, a star in a telescope looks just like it does when you look up in the sky. It's just a point of light. And we see that point of light, if we can measure the brightness precisely, drop by a tiny amount. For a planet the size of Jupiter, going in front of a star like the Sun, the light would drop by about 1% and it would um, drop for a few hours. And when the planet finishes going in front of the star, we call that transiting, then the starlight returns to normal. And so by measuring stars this way, we can discover planets. We call them transiting planets. But it's really hard because it's very rare for the planet's orbit to be lined up just so, so that it will go in front of its star. So out of, uh, depends on how far the planet is from the star, but 
out of hundreds and hundreds of stars, maybe only a few will, will show transits. And uh, what about radial velocity method? Well, the radial velocity method is very different, and it works based on the fact that a planet and star orbit their common center of mass. Some people like to say that the planet tugs on the star as the planet goes around the star, uh, tugs on it. That's not totally the correct way to see it. However, what we're observing is the star moving because the planet is orbiting it. Mm-hmm. And we're able to measure the Doppler shift of the star. That is, we can measure the star's motion along the line of sight towards us and away from us due to a tiny planet or due to a planet. And what's really interesting about both the transit and radial velocity techniques is that you don't see the planet directly. You only see the planet's effect on its starlight or its star's motion on the sky. Sarah, gravitational microlensing uh, is an astronomical phenomenon uh, that occurs due to the gravitational lens effect. Uh, gravitational microlensing can be used uh, to detect uh, objects uh, in space. Uh, please tell us uh, uh, about gravitational microlensing phenomenon first and then tell us how does it help us to detect exoplanets? Well, it's really quite fascinating, but just to review mm-hmm. what gravitational lensing does is if we have an unseen star that passes right between us and a very distant star, it has to pass at just the right distance. It acts like a lens because, according to Einstein, mass bends space, and the light will also bend. So the unseen star can actually act like a lens. And so if an unseen star passes right between us and a background star, the background star will brighten in a very characteristic way because its its rays are focused towards us. Now imagine for a moment that that unseen lens passing between us and the distant star has a planet around it. Mm-hmm. Then actually the star brightens in a very special way. First it starts brightening because of the star, and then it gets a little blip when the planet passes between the line of sight. So it's a technique that involves looking at many, many stars far away, hoping for that rare chance that an unseen object will pass as, and act as a lens. Amazingly, quite a number of planets have been discovered with the microlensing technique, a, a couple of dozen probably. Kepler Space Telescope uh, is perhaps the main source of data that uh, led us uh, to these discoveries. Uh, is this correct? Yes, that's correct. Kep- the Kepler Space Telescope was the first space telescope designed only to be working for exoplanets. And Kepler did something interesting, very different from any other space telescope before it, and that is it only really had one observation. It, Kepler looked at one field of stars that included 150,000 sun-like stars, and it looked at that field over and over again, every six seconds taking an image for about four years. That's like you having a camera and looking at an object and taking a picture over and over again. So Kepler, um, the data got binned on board the telescope, and it was sent down in one-minute or 30-minute increments. But it's pretty amazing, actually, taking that time series of data, so much data, and it enabled thousands of planets and planetary candidates to be found. And then uh, one of the reaction wheels um, uh, became faulty, and then another reaction wheel became faulty, I think, in 2013, I believe, or 2012. Uh, Do you think that uh, uh, it had a negative impact uh, on on, on the data that we were getting, and then perhaps it could have given us uh, even more information? Yes, it could have given us even more information. Kepler's mission was supposed to last uh, for four years, actually, you know, half about a half a year for just checkout and making sure it was working, and three and a half years for its main mission. So technically speaking, everything lasted as long as it should have. 
but unfortunately, we hoped all we always hope that the spacecraft will last much longer than it has to. And in the case of Kepler, that would have been very, very important because Kepler wanted to find Earth-sized planets in Earth-like orbits about Sun-like stars. Now, it takes our Earth one year to go around our Sun, our star. So Kepler wanted to see a planet go around not just once, but twice, but three times. Twice, the, you know, if, you see, if we were to see a transit, we'd like to see a second one just to verify it, and a third one just to be sure and to you know, gain statistics in the data. The problem, is, and so nominally Kepler should have been able to assess how common Earths are in Earth-like orbits, Earth-sized planets in Earth-like orbits. The problem is that sun-like stars turned out to be noisier than we expected. And we, only had, we had to send Kepler up there to know exactly how variable stars are at a very low level. And so we weren't able to, we meaning the community, was not able to get the data, that, get the signal that we needed. Only the team had found that if we could get three and a half more years of data, so if the total prime mission lifetime could be seven years, we would be able to reach down to the Earth-sized planets in Earth-like orbits. So unfortunately, that didn't happen. And so we don't know how common, how common the planets of most interest to us are we would have to extrapolate from um, larger planets or from shorter periods. Sarah, how did Kepler telescope gather data? As you just mentioned, was the telescope pointed at the same region in the sky and kept taking images, kept gathering data for that particular patch of sky again and again and again? Uh, So it was fixed on a particular location in the sky. Correct, fixed on a particular location in the sky. And, uh, and, you know, it wasn't possible to downlink all of the data, only little, we call them postage stamps, but little squares around, little regions around each star of interest were downloaded um, and the data was sent, downloaded, meaning the data was sent back to Earth. But yes, it was the same field of stars because we needed to look at the same stars for over three years, for as long as possible, to look for planets with long periods. Because if you're waiting for a transit to happen... And a transit only happens once every planet orbit, i.e. once every planet year. If, your years, if the planet year is like ours, one year, mm-hmm. you know, a year has to go by before you might see what you're looking for. And you need another year to go by so you can see the signal again. So it's, yeah, very long time series observations. Uh, Sarah, you say in your presentations that a preferred way of finding and studying exoplanets is to use a system of space telescope and a star shade, uh, where star shade is positioned in between the telescope and a distant star. Uh, the shade will block the star light and the telescope will be then able to see the light reflected from uh, the exoplanet. Talk to us about this proposed system of a space telescope and a star shade. Well, it relies in, on an even different technique than we've discussed already, and we call it direct imaging. Mm-hmm. The goal is to block out the star and to see the planet directly, because the, the methods that we have talked about so far, transits, radial velocity, and gravitational microlensing, all involve not seeing the planet directly, but only the effect that the planet has on another astronomical object, on another star. So in this case, we would block the starlight out. The problem is that if we want to find an Earth... Earth is very, very faint compared to a sun-like star. In fact, our own Earth is 10 billion times fainter than our sun. So we'd Mm -hmm. have to block out the light of another star to 10 billion times. That's very challenging. That would be like asking anyone to make a measurement to 10 decimal places. You know, your ruler doesn't have 10 decimal places. It's not something that we encounter in our everyday life. And there are a few different ways to do this problem, to solve this problem. 
although none have actually been done yet, except in the lab we're making so much progress, almost there. One concept that I'm involved with is we call it the starshade. And the starshade is a giant screen in space. It would be about 30 meters in diameter. It would be a big screen, and that screen would fly in formation with a telescope. But the telescope and screen would have to be separated by tens of thousands of kilometers. It's like imagine putting up your hand in front of your face to block the moon. It's kind of like that, where your hand would be the screen and your eye would be the telescope. And so the goal here is to figure out how to manufacture and stow and launch and deploy. The goal would be to figure out how to manufacture and how to stow, launch, and deploy the screen and to fly it information with the telescope. Mm -hmm. We think we know how to do this, actually, right now. One of my main jobs is leading a study team that includes engineers and other scientists to figure out the best path forward. Uh, uh, do you have the mechanical systems uh, that can deploy yes. Starshade? We, we do, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. We do, and you can, um, just as an aside, if you Google it, you can actually end up finding it on NASA JPL's website. It's not work that our team did, but it's other work that's been done in the community. Some has been done at Northrop Grumman Corporation. Some has been done at NASA's JPL. And what they've done is they've used, they've used concepts and real hardware left over from large radio deployables, big radio parabolic dishes in space that are used by communications companies. The way that the screen is folded up and how it could deploy has actually been tested and demonstrated at the full scale in the lab. So a lot of work has been done on what are the options for the exact shape of the screen, what are the different ways it could be stowed and deployed, and real tests have been already been done. And uh, uh, from funding point of view and just getting a concrete go-ahead, uh, do you think that this uh, project uh, uh, may go ahead in the next 8 to 10 years? Well, we don't have a go-ahead yet. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we wouldn't be working so hard unless we believe there was a really great path forward. All I can say is that momentum is building here because after the Kepler Space Telescope, we know that small planets are common. And now we have to figure out what is the easiest way to find a small planet that might be able to support life. What's our best way to do that in the near future? And so the starshade is starting to look like it's the best way to do it. And so that's why uh, we believe that it will eventually be funded. The most important work that my team and others have done recently is to detail what we call the technology gap list. What are the big technological hurdles that need to be figured out, built, tested, before we're ready to confidently say we can absolutely build this thing and, and fly it. So we're working on that now. We know what that list is, and we know we're starting to figure out how much it would cost to, to, complete, to complete the items on that list. Is this a big list? Do we still have a, a number of major gaps? It's not that long. It's about, you know, it falls into about six categories, and one of them, for example, one of the ones that is it's amazing, but the starshade petals themselves literally have to be almost razor sharp because the light from our own sun could hit those edges and, you know, scatter off of them into the area where the starshade is supposed to be blocking light. So there's sort of very subtle things like that that have to be figured out. But it's not, no one thinks any of these things on the list are impossible. We're not starting from scratch on any of them. They're just things that all have to be finished. You know, we think we know how to solve that problem. It's just a matter of actually demonstrating in the lab. And if this mission goes ahead, if this concept is uh, is 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 um, is practically deployed, then we will be able to actually look at exoplanets. We will be able to do direct imaging. 
That's correct. And our goal is to be able to look at a couple of dozen of sun-like stars with the capability to find and identify a planet like Earth if it is there. But you should know that direct imaging is already going on, just not for solar system aged planets, but for planets that are very big or very hot or very young and very far from their star. Ground-based telescopes have direct imaging capabilities. They're not nearly at the level we need to find small planets like Earth, but it's still it's something that's going on right now even. Uh, okay, let us discuss two very interesting aspects of uh, research on exoplanets. Uh, finding exoplanets in habitable zone and finding Earth-like exoplanets. Let us discuss these one by one. Now, habitable zone is a region of space where conditions are best for life. Uh, not too hot, not too cold, but just right. Uh, Sarah, the research on uh, extremophiles tells us that life can exist in extreme environments in a variety of places. So as a researcher in the field of exoplanets, how do you define habitable zone? Right, well this is a tricky question and one thing about extremophiles, it seems like they're living in extreme environments but we believe that many exoplanets will have even more extreme environments. The things that we look, we consider generically speaking and then I'll get to specifics are a temperature that's suitable for, it sounds a little technical, but we say the right temperature so that molecules can form. We know mm -hmm. just from basic chemistry that if it's too hot, one can only have atoms, and atoms aren't enough for the complexity of life. So we need to have a cool enough temperature so molecules can form. The second ingredient is some kind of liquid. It doesn't necessarily have to be liquid, but a, a liquid that can help molecules have chemical reactions so they can split up and reform into other things. The third one is a source of energy. And life on Earth here, and we eat plants and other, other food for our energy. So a source of energy is needed. And then finally, some people like to say conditions that help with Darwinian evolution. And that just means changing conditions so that the molecules will react or when life forms, it will evolve into something more complicated. But let's take the first three. Temperatures, we know we need the right surface temperature. In terms of liquid, the most abundant planetary material that forms liquid is water. And so it seems always very terracentric, you know, very focused on our own Earth, terracentric, to think we need liquid water. But it's really our best bet for something that's abundant. For example, carbon dioxide can be liquid, but only for a very, very narrow range of temperatures and pressures. And all life on Earth, no matter how extreme, requires liquid water. It's based on cells that have liquid inside of it. So in that case, um, liquid water is needed. Energy, you know, stars give off energy just like our sun does, so we think we're, we're okay there. Also, many life forms more simple than plants can use energy in the form of chemical energy gradients. So when we put all of that together, the right temperature, some kind of liquid, preferably liquid water, and a source of energy, uh, we define a habitable zone, a region around a star, because pl small rocky planets are heated by their star where the temperature will be not too hot, not too cold, but just right for life. However, recently researchers are realizing that that's kind of a problem to define in a way because of the planet atmosphere. We know from our own Earth's atmosphere that greenhouse warming is an issue. And some of these planets could have way more greenhouse gases than Earth has, making them very hot and maybe incompatible for life. So we're starting to consider a new type of concept that habitability is really planet independent. You could have a big planet with a massive greenhouse effect that would be too hot for life in a traditional habitable zone, but further away from its star, it might still be habitable. Another concept when it comes to exoplanets, uh, finding an Earth-like exoplanet. When we say 
earth like exoplanet what exactly do we mean by this an exoplanet with similar size similar temperature pressure a similar duration of a day and year well everyone has their own definition for that and so <laughs> i can't answer it really specifically for everybody but on the whole we mean a planet that is about earth size and about earth mass it could be bigger or a bit smaller and that has a thin atmosphere so it doesn't have a massive atmosphere full of carbon dioxide but an atmosphere that might be somewhat like earth and then one that has oceans and continents so by earth like that's what we mean uh another very interesting uh, and important aspect of your research is to model and to study exoplanet atmosphere uh and the goal is to understand the uh, atmospheric pressure uh, temperature you suggest in your publications that transit observation of exoplanets can be used to model planets atmosphere can be used to detect presence of gases clouds uh, talk to us about this uh, aspect of uh, your research yes well models are always important to help interpret observations and for planetary atmospheres they have been studied for many decades starting with trying to understand earth's own atmosphere to planets of our own solar system like venus and mars and and all of them and jupiter so it's a very filled with a lot of heritage and we make models of the atmosphere of exoplanets so we can understand what they might be like and so far today we have observations of about 3 dozen or more even exoplanet atmospheres and about 5 of those have very detailed measurements we call it a spectrum we're able to see gases in those planet atmospheres these are limited right now to what we can see with our technology that we have today and those are really big planets or hot planets planets that are very close to the star so they're planets that are not suitable for life but nonetheless we've been able to make progress by making models to try to understand what we see in a planet atmosphere this is fascinating gathering data while an exoplanet is passing in front of the host star uh so we are observing starlight some of the starlight is blocked and some of the starlight is coming through the tiny atmosphere around the exoplanet and we intend to use the starlight that is passing through the exoplanet atmosphere and the radiation coming out of the exoplanet to study exoplanet atmosphere do we have equipment that can capture data at such scale and uh, do we have data sets to work on yes in fact we do and it is a very tiny amount we have the hubble space telescope and the hubble space telescope can work for us on very bright stars with transiting planets so we get a lot of signal and we also have the spitzer space telescope which can work for some planets not all of them but quite a number of them now some planets are very hot they're so close to their star we have found planets that are many times closer to their star than mercury is to our sun even giant planets and these planets are heated by the star and they actually do emit their own radiation they don't create their own light but they emit they absorb radiation from the star they absorb light from the star and that gets reprocessed and reemitted as thermal radiation heat and we're actually able to measure that with the spitzer space telescope so there's several things going on where yes we actually do have telescopes that were already existing and that were not built for exoplanets to help us study atmospheres also there are a number of ground-based telescopes the largest ones that we have on this planet and those are 10 meters in size or 8 meters in diameter and those those telescopes have mirrors that are about 8 to 10 meters in diameter and those are also participating in observing exoplanet atmospheres 
mm-hmm. but really we are limited to the hot planets or the big ones. If we think of even smaller, more rocky planets like Earth, those are tiny and their atmospheres are even smaller. <laughs> so those ones we don't have the technology to study yet. Does this data go far enough that we could study the interiors of these exoplanets? It doesn't go far enough itself when we look at the atmosphere because mm-hmm. just like the analogy of looking down into a pond or a lake, you can never see to the bottom of it when you're in the deepest part because you just can't see that far down. Light doesn't make it that far without getting scattered. But we can study the ma- we can measure the mass and size of planets. For some of them we get both the mass and the size. Derive the density, the average density of the planet by mass over volume. And by getting that, we can try to infer what the planet is made of on the inside. Sometimes the planet has a very low density, and we know that it must be made of mostly hydrogen and helium because we don't have anything else that can, because there's nothing else that can make a planet of so low density. Sometimes we find a planet of very high density, and we know it must be predominantly rocky. Other times the planet is even in between density, and we're not quite sure what it's made of. So we can infer what's in the interior, but we can't study exactly what's there. Biosignatures are signs of life in a planet's atmosphere and on its surface. Uh, if we look at Earth for biosignatures, we find oxygen, ozone, methane, uh, water vapors. Have we started studying exoplanets for biosignatures? We haven't yet been able to observe any exoplanets for biosignature gases. We have studied it in a lot of detail. People, a lot of people are putting a lot of effort into trying to understand if we in the future find oxygen in another planet atmosphere will we sure will we be sure this is created by life as it is on earth but in terms of observations we're not capable of doing that quite yet if we find an earth like planet a planet that is in a habitable zone uh, with biosignatures uh, this discovery will lead to two very interesting questions uh, first question is that is there life out there Uh, and the second question is do we have technology to get there and perhaps to settle there uh, which question in your view is going to be more pressing well wow, that's so great i love both of those questions <laughs> i think i would have to like them both <laughs> um i think it's great we are really hoping that we were working so hard to try to find planets like earth so that we have the chance to look for signs of life beyond earth But often people will ask, well, how sure will you be? If you see gases that don't belong, that you think are biosignature gases, how certain will you be? You know, the answer is we'll never be exactly 100% sure. I could tell you, you know, we're 90% sure in this case. In this other case, we're 99% sure. In this case, we're 50% sure. Because on the most part, you know, life has the same molecules to work with that geophysics does. And we see many of our favorite biosignature gases are also emitted by volcanoes or come out of the deep sea floor. So in a lot of cases we're not certain that we will well we're we're confident that we will have the capability of finding biosignature gases but identifying them as such and whether life is common enough that it will provide for us we're not sure about that yet. So that's why the second question is so interesting if we find planets that we believe are like Earth whether or not we can see signs of life on them what are we going to do next? And I think a lot of humanity just loves the idea of space exploration. and i really do believe that someday people will figure out a way to get there either themselves or initially robotic probes it's going to be a multi-generational project though 
you have developed an updated version of Drake uh, equation. Now that we have hundreds of exoplanets, what does this updated version of Drake equation tell us about life in the universe? Well, like the Drake equation itself, this revised or updated version, it's supposed to help illustrate what we know and what we will never know. And so the updated Drake equation tells us what we, you know, the, how the problem, it tells us the conditions that we need or the things that have to happen for us to find signs of life. So the first few terms in my equation are, like in the Drake equation, things that can be measured. They're how many stars could a given telescope access or observe. They're about how many planets are in the habitable zones of those stars. We actually have a handle on that now from the Kepler Space Telescope. And then we get into terms that we can't necessarily find the answer. Then we get into terms that we can't measure yet, but we would have to speculate on, like how many of those planets would have, what fraction of those planets would have life on them, what fraction of those planets with life. Then we would get into terms that we have to speculate on, what fraction of those planets would have life on them, what fraction of that life would produce gases that would fill the atmosphere that we could detect remotely. So what it tells us initially is our first shot at being able to find rocky planets and then study their atmospheres will come in the future with two space telescopes. One is called the TESS Space Telescope. It's like Kepler, but it's a survey of stars closer to us that are also brighter. And that's an MIT-led NASA mission called TESS, Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And that will find us a pool of planets around small stars that will follow up with the James Webb Space Telescope. TESS will be launched in 2017 and James Webb in 2018. So in the first implementation of the equation, I ask what are the chances or how many planets might we have to find life on with, with, that combined, with those combined space telescopes. I mean, there's no real answer because the second set of terms are very speculative. But if we got really lucky and every small star has a planet in the habitable zone, that's a rocky planet that could host life, and half of those planets do have life, and most of that life generates a spectroscopic biosignature gas that we can actually detect remotely with the James Webb Space Telescope, then we might find one. We might find a planet with signs of life on it. The exoplanets that we have discovered so far and the ones that we have been studying, what type of planets are these? Uh, uh, are most of these exoplanets gas giants? Uh, are these rocky planets? Yes, well, we know of so many kinds. We know of planets that are smaller than Earth to ones that are larger than Jupiter. We know of planets that orbit so close to the star that their orbit, their gear, only lasts for less than a day. We know planets that are way farther from their star than Pluto is from our sun. So we found so many different things. But each technique has a special sensitivity. And for all the techniques, it turns out that our own solar system actually is very hard to find. So we haven't found any copies of our solar system yet, not because we haven't tried, but our solar system is not extremely common. We know that for sure. So we haven't been able to find uh, planets. We haven't been able to identify any planets like Earth, although we believe that Kepler has found some Earth-sized planets in the habitable zones of their host, host stars. So it's a bit of a long answer just to say, you know, it's hard to describe in words. We found all sorts of planets, but because of uh, the sensitivity of different techniques to different types of planets, we haven't been able to find anything exactly like our own solar system yet. As you just mentioned that uh, not only exoplanets, but also planetary systems within which these exoplanets exist have different characteristics. It means that the process of formation of planets and planetary systems 
is perhaps not consistent uh, uh, in the universe. Yes, and if it's one thing we've learned for sure is that planet formation is a random process. When we, you know, star is born, it has leftover gas and dust that forms a disk around the forming star, and all of that material we think eventually forms into planets, but exactly which type of planets and when they form, we think they move around in the disk while they interact with the disk itself and other planets. It's uh, a lot's going on there. It's a very chaotic and violent beginning. And uh, there are binary systems uh, and circumbinary planets uh, that orbit two stars. Uh, is this correct? Yes, it's correct that Kepler has found planets that orbit two stars. That is, there are two stars, a binary system where the stars are orbiting each other, and one planet orbits both of those stars together. So essentially, that would be like having two suns. Uh, and uh, there are planets that are just uh, um, there in the universe without any host star. They are just uh, just travelers. Just uh, What about those planets? Yes, yeah, so people believe that Whenever a planetary system forms, more planets form than can stably coexist together, and that planets are often, if not always, rejected from their planetary system. And so if that's the case, there should be planets freely floating through our galaxy, just rogue planets floating around. Now, we're not 100% sure that these have been found yet. Gravitational microlensing has found some objects that are so far from the star they can't tell if they're bound to a star or not. People like to think, and the preferred view is that they are freely floating. Uh, you just mentioned a very interesting point, uh, that the data uh, that we have collected and analyzed so far, uh, and our observations uh, tell us that our solar system uh, is a unique system. Uh, it has unique characteristics. Uh, do you think that there is a possibility that even after further research, we may end up saying that, yes, our solar system is unique, and this may lead us back to 16th century thinking that our Earth is unique, our Sun is unique, and our solar system is unique. Uh, is there any possibility of this happening? I don't think that will happen. Mm -hmm. We think now, based on what we know about stars, and for stars that we haven't found planets around, it could be that 10% of sun-like stars have a solar system like ours. That's a lot we think about it, if we have, you know, 100 billion, or let's say we even have 10 to 100 billion stars like our sun in our galaxy, that's still a billion, even a fraction of a billion solar systems. So we're, that one, although we can't answer yet, there's room, there's still room. Once we could do the starshade, if we could do the starshade, we could see an Earth and a Jupiter. And we would know that at that time that we found solar systems more like our own. Part of the problem is that it's like the six blind men and the elephant, you know, each planet technique Imagine one could see the legs of an elephant, one could see tail, but it's very hard for us to see an entire planetary system. In most cases, we can only find one or two planets, even though we think there must be many more planets in that system. So there's a variety of reasons why we don't think our solar system is unique. It's more that we see a continuous range of possibilities. Studying exoplanets is exciting. Uh, however, from the perspective of uh, humanity's future, and our evolution as a civilization. Studying nearby planets is also interesting and important. Uh, for instance, uh, studying Mars, exploring the possibility of terraforming Mars, exploring the possibility of re-engineering its atmosphere, and exploring the possibility of settling there. Is this also an interesting topic? 
Well, it is for some people. It's not my main interest or specialty, but it's the question of should we explore as humans? Is it inevitable that we leave our planet Earth and that at least some people go and form a colony, be that on the moon or Mars or on a spacecraft traveling through space? I think that's a question that anyone could have their own personal opinion on. I think people love exploring and that it is inevitable eventually. And finally, what are major developments and breakthroughs that you envisage uh, in the study of exoplanets, say in next uh, 50 to 60 years? Well, like all of astronomy, exoplanets is driven by observational capability. So just like when the Hubble Space Telescope launched or when Kepler launched, they made such huge strides in astronomy and Kepler for exoplanets that it's breathtaking. So really, when we think about the next 50 or 60 years, we think about the next telescopes. I would say that even in the next 10 years, when the James Webb Space Telescope launches and turns on, that will be a big step forward for exoplanets because we will be able to study transiting planets like we do today, but down to small rocky planets, perhaps even those orbiting in the habitable zones of small stars. I'd say beyond that, what we are waiting for is a day in the future. I wish it was only 10 years away, but it's probably more like 20 or 30 years away, where we go even beyond the James Webb Space Telescope, and that as a civilization, we figure out how to put 10 to 20 meter diameter visible wavelength telescopes in space. And if we can do that, we could survey hundreds of sun-like stars, maybe a thousand even. And in that time, we could find hundreds of Earths and everything else. We could really find real solar system analogs. And we could find many, many dozens to hundreds of planets that might be like Earth. And we could tell if they were like Earth and if they had signs of life on them. So I think that would take us up to two or three decades from now. Beyond that is really anybody's guess, because when we look ahead, we think we know how to put a very large telescope in space where very large is 10 to 20 meters. But beyond that, there may be whole new techniques developed, brand new ways of, of building things in space. Maybe it's robotic assembly of smaller pieces. Maybe it's making things in space. It's not really clear where that's going. I really hope that within 50 or 60 years, people launch the first probe to another star system with a known planet, even though it may not get there for even much more, many, many more decades or even centuries, I really hope that starts and that we will see um, the beginning of interstellar travel. Professor Sarah Seeger, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Thank you very much. Thanks and goodbye. Okay, great. Have a good day.